time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. We have a special treat for you guys tonight. We are starting a mini series, two weeks called I Believe, obviously. And tonight we're going to have, I want to introduce to some of you and just kind of present to the others of you. We have one of the most amazing intern pastors in the country here with us tonight. Some of you have met him. Most of you see him a lot of times over there on the keys, but I just want you, I want you guys, this is the first time preaching to DSM, but he preaches to interns every week. He comes to us from Kansas City. He's been here for a few months, him and his beautiful wife, Rachel Culver, and their beautiful little girl, Aaliyah. I want you guys to stand to your feet and just kind of welcome Pastor Caleb as he preaches the word to us tonight. Come on. Thanks, man. Thanks, guys. Let's give another big hand to the team that put on the skit. Absolute truth. I'm thankful for Brandon. He's our Renaissance youth pastor. He sings, leads worships, preaches, leads worships, leads worship, preaches, does drama, dances beautifully. You guys got to see him dance beautifully. Um, this is my wife, Rachel, and my little girl, Aaliyah, if you want to stand up so everyone can see you guys. Like Pastor Brandon said, uh, we've been here for about five months. We moved from IHOP, Kansas City. I was out there for about nine years. I was on the worship team with Corey for about four, uh, four or five years, and uh, I actually uh, when I was at IHOP, more than I worked with young adults, I actually worked with teenagers. I was a part of the student ministries there. Um, I did uh, what was called worship and prayer. We did a prayer room with about, a, uh, we did about 24 hours of live prayer and worship a week, and then we did a summer camp. And so I'm actually used to uh, working with, with teenagers, so I feel right at home. So I'm just so pumped to be here. I love DSM. I love what... Uh, Pastor David and Pastor John and Pastor Brandon have cultivated here. There's such a hunger uh, for the presence of the Lord, and I'm just so happy to be here. So um, tonight, uh, I want to talk about um, greatness as it's defined by God. Um, for those of you who are going on the missions trip, I'll, uh, uh, I'll apply it. Um, but uh, when I was uh, four Five years old, I was in Africa. Actually, I was there from two to five. My parents were missionaries in Africa. And uh, I was in Zaire, or it's the Congo now. It was Zaire, which is a country on the equator. And if you are not familiar with countries on the equator, it's pretty much like a normal country, except about 10 times hotter. Um, it's about 115, 120, up to 130 in the summer. And uh, we used to just lie on our... Uh, concrete floors and have fans blow on us during the heat of the day. That was about all you could do. Um, so our mom would take us to uh, a community pool every, I don't know, week or two. So I, uh, I actually remember this. I was only three years old. It was one of, one of my first memories. But uh, I was rolling up to the community pool, had my orange swimmies on, was feeling good. I Probably stuck out like a sore thumb. There was probably three white kids and about 150 kids in the pool, but I was just loving life, feeling confident. And uh, the, at the end of this pool, there was this diving board, 
And uh, it was about three feet high and was off a ladder. And then on top of that was another diving board that was about 18 feet high. And uh, I'm just chilling in this pool. Uh, our parents are, are watching my siblings and then the other, uh, the other kids that were at the pool that were missionary kids. So I climb over to the ladder and... Uh, you know, I had watched a couple other kids jump off, and even though I'm three, you know, I saw that, you know, the cool thing to do, the thing that was impressive, was not to do the little one, but in fact, to do the 18-footer. And so, in my three-year-old courage, and not really understanding the law of gravity or the effects that it has on the body, I climbed all the way up to the top had my moment, and I noticed as I was getting to the top, people started paying attention. People were all looking at me, and I already stuck out because I was already that white kid at the pool where there wasn't many white kids there. And, uh, and I just, with everyone's attention, I just went, jumped for it, and, uh, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing, so I didn't do a dive, but I did a perfect belly flop. And I, I remember smacking the water in my... Uh, Someone, my mom or someone had to jump in and grab me, and uh, I learned the uh, important lesson that day about gravity and the fact that water is not as soft as it feels than when you're in it. But uh, there's something inside of us all, even at a young age, at the age of two, three, four, that longs to do something great, that longs for greatness, that longs to do something that's remembered to have impact. And that's something that you can't repent away because the Lord is the one who gave you that desire. The Lord is the one who put it in you. The only problem is we've let the world define what greatness looks like. And we define greatness as the majority of popular opinion gives us the thumbs up instead of the thumbs down. And greatness to God looks extremely different. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 38 Jesus says, and he answers to a question from the Pharisees. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is the great and first commandment. This scripture around the age of 18, 19 liberated me in a unique way. See, until I was 18, 19, I was convinced that I had to have certain smarts. I had to have people skills. I had to make a certain amount a year to make um, my parents uh, proud of me and, and, and to have society look at me and say, you were great. You did a great job with your education. You did a great job with what, with what you're doing. And, what, and uh, there was a moment when I was reading this scripture when there was a switch that happened inside of me that said, greatness is defined by how much I love Jesus. And I realized at that age, that if I love Jesus well, if I love Jesus with all of my heart, if I gave him everything, at the end of the day, even if I worked at Burger King and I you know, lived on a street corner for 40 years, that the Lord would call my life successful. And uh, I want to look at someone uh, who understood this really well and that Jesus highlights as someone as being great. He actually uh, says, and we'll read it, that everywhere the gospel is preached, a memorial will be built unto them. And that's Mary of Bethany. So if you want to open up to Mark 14 in your Bibles, I'll give you a second. 
I'm going to read the story from Mark, and then I'm going to uh, touch on it from John a little bit. It's Mark 14, and we're going to start in verse 3. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster, alabaster flask of oil and pure spikenard, very costly, She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like this? For this could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her sharply. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. But you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What a powerful thing of Jesus to say to you. So I want to give the, the, the backdrop of the story a little bit. This is happening right at the beginning of Passion Week, right before Jesus is about to go to the cross. Jesus has said... And I'll explain why it hasn't made sense yet. But Jesus has said that I'm going to have to die. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to suffer and die. And Mary has heard this about Jesus. And I can just see, you know, the scenario of her hearing these words and, and not, it not making sense. But her saying, okay, he's going to die. He's meant so much to me. He's changed my life. What can I do to show him that I love him? You know, I can just think, she's just searching, okay, I could tell him, I could write him a letter, I could, you know, what, what could I do? And then, you know, the thought pops in her head, wait a minute, I have this bottle of extremely expensive perfume. I have this, this is the most expensive thing I own. I can just see her then grappling with the questions that would come with staring at this bottle just saying, can I do this? I mean, what if Jesus just dies and then that's it? Like, I don't have a job. This is my financial security. This is probably, what was probably handed down to her. It was her most prized possession. And then beyond that, what will everyone else think? What will the disciples think? Well, we obviously know that she had good reason to, to think, to doubt what the disciples would say because of how they responded. Like, what will they do? How will they respond? How will Lazarus or, or Martha respond? I mean, are they going to be mad? Are they, are they going to get wasted? And then beyond that, what will Jesus think? Will he think it's weird? Will he say, get off me? What are you doing? Will, will, will he think I'm being inappropriate? And I can just see the drama of, of all of these questions. Now, I kind of want to look from the disciples' perspective. Now, uh, the disciples a lot of times are made out to be kind of the dumb jocks. You know, they're just absolutely, you know, brain dead. They're the Rob Gronkowskis. They're just like the dudes who are just total meatheads, have no idea what's going on. Um, I'm going to burn the disciples, but I'm also going to kind of get their back a little bit. Um, they might not be as clueless as you think. See, uh, in that day when they, when they called Jesus Messiah, they weren't telling Jesus that he was fully God. 
Messiah was a word that meant leader, uh, like David was called Messiah, for example. Um, But they were waiting for the Messiah, and the Messiah, who they didn't know that he would be fully God. They just knew that he would be a son of God, that God sent him, but that this Messiah would come, and they're not thinking of someone to come to take away their sins. They were in oppression from the Roman government. You guys have all seen the Passion or, or... or the Bible series, and so you know what, what it was like at the time. There was tension, and they were waiting to be liberated from the bonds of a political oppression. And so uh, Messiah to them mostly meant a political leader who was going to free them, but Messiah also meant someone who would reign on the throne of David forever, i.e. not die. And so when Jesus says, hey, the Messiah has to suffer and die, The disciples aren't so dumb that they can't figure out what that means. In their minds, all they've known is that the Messiah will never die. And so in their mind, they're thinking, okay, this is a parable. This is, this is, you know, uh, just like one of his other stories. He's talking about a spiritual death or something, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're grappling back and forth between these questions. But here's the big thing that separated them. Because Mary often is played to be kind of dense, too. I, I've actually heard people teach that Mary, like, she's just sweet, and she didn't want to get into the theology of it. She just wanted to love Jesus. No, Mary is seen throughout Scripture sitting at Jesus' feet. She's seen learning, hearing his words, applying them to his life. Mary was, not, was someone who was hungry for the knowledge of God. Mary was not someone who just was like, well, I don't need to read my Bible or listen to Jesus' words. All I need to do is worship and and love him. That's not how it was. Mary felt the same pressure. She didn't understand. Why is he going to die? The the Messiah has to live forever. Is, Is he not really the Messiah? Mary's wrestling with the same questions. But the big difference is Mary didn't let the questions, didn't let the paradox, didn't let the wrestle stop her from giving her wholehearted, extravagant love to Jesus. Well, the disciples did. Well, the disciples just wrestled with it and let it live up in their heads. Mary said, I don't understand. I don't know why. I might not even know how. But I know that his words are life. I know that when he spoke and I obeyed his words, my life changed. And I'm going to give him my wholehearted worship. Mary's worship was very costly. I mentioned it a little bit before, but um, it was costly in, in two main areas. Sorry, my mouth is dry, my throat hurts because Moose decided to pick songs that were really high, and I tried to sing them all. Thanks, Moose. I'm just kidding. He did a great job. The first one was it costed, it costed, it cost a lot of money. Which also meant financial security. The perfume was worth 300 denarii, which was a year's wages. And so it's not just that it cost a lot of money. It's that this was the backup plan. If it didn't work out with Jesus, she didn't have anything to fall back on. This was the backup plan. And so Jesus was saying or excuse me, what Mary was saying, Mary was saying, I refuse to hold on to a backup plan. I, I think that 
Jesus is who he says he is. And I'm going to trust him with kicking out all the props. And my life is in his hands. Costed money. And the second one that cost her reputation. She faced sharp criticism for a radical devotion to Jesus. That's such a biting line. Why was this oil wasted? Could you imagine how hurtful that would be? You are pouring out your most prized possession to Jesus. You are making yourself extremely vulnerable. And then the people that follow that are closest to Jesus come right back and say, what a waste. This could have actually gone to something good. Not only were you stupid financially, but you could have actually done some actual good by giving it to someone who needed it. Jesus didn't need it. That was the the reaction. It was a sharp criticism. And if you love Jesus extravagantly, hear me, you will face sharp criticism, not just from people who don't love Jesus, but people who love Jesus. And a lot of times they might be meaning well, but they don't understand what the Lord put in your heart. They don't understand the fact that your heart burns for prayer and for the word. They don't understand. Why get up at 6 a.m. before school and read your Bible? Just chill out. Like, God's going to love you either way. Either way, he's going to feel the same way about you. So just chill out. You don't have to read your Bible so much. You don't have to, you don't have to pray so much. Why do you always have to be so spiritual and, and you know, not watch you know, A, B, and C movie and not listen to A, B, C music? Those will be people, a lot of times, with good intentions. But you will be criticized sharply if you love Jesus. But here's what's so beautiful about Mary. Mary doesn't respond in the story. You know why? She's too busy loving Jesus. She's too busy pouring out her love on Jesus. She's too focused on Jesus that she doesn't even respond to the criticism. And that's the perfect example of what we're to do. When the criticism comes, we don't take our eyes off of Jesus. We keep our eyes focused on him. We look to him. She doesn't let the criticism affect her love. She doesn't even address it. She just loves Jesus. And here, because of that, we see that Jesus vindicates her by rebuking those who criticize her. He says, sharply, leave her alone. And the beautiful thing is, even though Mary wasn't too busy to criticize Jesus, Jesus wasn't too busy to not vindicate Mary. He made sure that the disciples knew that they were in the wrong. He made sure to defend her. And if you let go of the offense that comes with other people criticizing you for loving Jesus, the Lord will defend you. He will vindicate you. And that vindication will look different. He'll, he'll give you gifts. He'll give you grace to run harder. He'll move on that person's heart to turn and they see you loving so well and their heart will turn. He will vindicate you in different ways, but he will vindicate you. Vengeance is his. It's not yours. If you lay it down, if you just love Jesus, and I, I love the, def- the defense of Jesus, he doesn't just say, leave her alone. 
he actually says, wherever the gospel is preached, that's where there's going to be a memorial built to what Mary did. Now, what does that mean? I think it, I think it means two things. I think it means, one, that Mary gave the perfect picture of how to respond to the gospel. I think that Mary's reaction of this man wants everything. What is the most I can give? And there's a question our generation has at times. And that question is, what's the least I can do and still be called radical? What's the, what's the most compromise I can get away with but still be fiery for God? Mary turned that question on said. She said, what's the most I can give? What's the most I can do? What's, what's the most extravagant thing I can do? That's the thing I'm going to do. That's a response of the gospel. But here's something else. Mary's offering was also a picture of what Jesus was about to do seven days later. Mary poured out her life, gave her most expensive, costly gift. Well, others didn't understand criticized, rebuked, and she still gave it. Jesus, seven days later, when people didn't understand, they mocked, they rebuked. Jesus broke open his alabaster box, and he gave the greatest love that anyone can give his life, and he laid it down. And so that memorial that's built is both and. It's how we respond, but it's also a picture Of Jesus saying, what Mary did, I did that. I did that for you. You sat in that room, and I came in, and I broke my bottle of perfume over you. I want to look at the fragrance specifically a little bit. Turn to John. John 12. This is probably the least detailed, but my favorite account of this story. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus, who came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, who had been raised from the dead, there they made a supper, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. John is the only one who mentions that the fragrance fills the house. And there's a picture here and there's a principle that comes with it. And that's corporate breakthrough doesn't come before personal sacrifice. And that somebody had to break open that costly perfume so that the entire house could smell the fragrance of something pleasing. Now, everyone in the house, that wasn't their costly offering, but that fragrance was an invitation to be extravagant. Now, for Judas, as we saw here in John, that invitation hardened his heart and he turned and he he got angry. 
But I don't think that was true for all the disciples. I think for some of the disciples, especially after seeing Jesus' response, were provoked to love Jesus with everything. The benefits of Mary's sacrifice was reaped by everyone. Everyone got to experience that fragrance. And that, that fragrance was a uh, spikenard perfume. It was, uh, the reason it was so expensive is because it was extremely refined. It was, it was this plant, and the scent was uh, uh, refined over and over again to get the scent stronger and stronger. And the idea was, the reason it was so expensive is because it was so incredibly potent. It was uh, meant to be worn, and it, would, and it would last for weeks, if not months. You know, they didn't shower every day back then. They would wash, you know, their feet. They would wash different parts. They got dirty, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't shower, so they would, the, the rich would wear really ex- expensive perfume because they could cover up the smell, and so the fragrance didn't last like a day, like your cheap cologne and perfume does. It, it, it would last months. And there's just something about fragrance that triggers so much in us, right? Like when I go home, I can look at the house, you know, I can give my mom and dad a hug, I can say hi to my brother and sister. But you know, when that Christmas turkey and that Christmas apple pie, they're baking, that's when I feel like I'm at home. Nothing brings me there like a fragrance. And it's, it's true, uh, you know, Rachel and I have been together for 10 years. We've been married almost seven. And, and the perfumes that she would wear when we started dating or, or the, the lotions or whatever, those scents, when she wears those, it brings me back to those first couple weeks and months where I was just learning about who Rachel was. It brings me back in a way that looking at her, even looking at videos and pictures doesn't. That there's, there's just a, uh, something about smell that just takes you somewhere, whether it's a memory or it brings you to a new place. And Jesus was anointed not just with, you know, words, but with a fragrance. And I just love thinking about, you know, Mary when she left and Jesus when he left. They both smelled the same, like the same fragrance. But here's what's powerful to me is they didn't just leave that day. Is Jesus smelled like Mary's fragrance the entirety of Passion Week. So I just think about Jesus and just go, go there with me in your minds. Just picture these. I mean, you know these stories. Jesus goes into the temple and he sees the money changers. And he sees people that are, have turned his house, a place that was meant to be a place to connect with God, have turned it into a place of commerce and making money. And how his heart was broken. You know, the story of him flipping over the tables and saying, my house will be called a house of prayer. And zeal for my house has consumed me. While Jesus walks in and sees his people rejecting his house, He can stop and he can smell the fragrance of someone who understood his house and that it was made for worship and made for prayer. When he was looking over Jerusalem and he was saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come unto me. 
And he's weeping and he's brokenhearted that Israel, the people that he came, the people that he was about to pour his life onto were rejecting him. While he was feeling the pain of that rejection, he could smell the fragrance of a woman who had accepted him. When Judas denied him, and then Peter, one of his closest friends, denies him three times when everyone runs at his arrest, when everyone rejects him in that moment of pain, he could be comforted with someone who didn't care what other people thought, who threw that aside and gave him his worship. And then finally, when Jesus is on the cross, feeling pain that you will never understand. And I'm, and I'm not talking physically. I'm talking the pain of scorned love. There's nothing more excruciating that anyone can feel than scorned love. Than giving love and not receiving it back. And Jesus was on the cross, became sin for us. And the Father turned his back And Jesus, on the cross, all alone, forsaken by God and man, he could pause. And in his hair, he could smell the fragrance of someone who didn't reject him. I want to turn quickly to Revelation 4. Or, excuse me, Revelation 8. Revelation 8, verse 4. Let me give you the context. John lets us into the scene that's going on in heaven. There's a giant bull in heaven, and in that bull... Is prayers. Did you know that when you pray, it's more than you just speak and then those words are done? There's a real bowl in heaven. There's a tangible place where your prayers have real form. So there's this bowl, and this is taking place right before the seventh trumpet, right before Jesus returns. And look at verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God. From the angel's hand. So this bowl is poured out on this altar. This is a real scene. It's really going to happen. And when that happens, the entirety of heaven is filled with a fragrance. All of heaven is filled with an overwhelming incense. And incense is seen throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, they burn it in the temple uh, in the morning and in the evening. And it said that the the fragrance was pleasing. The fragrance of sacrifices were pleasing to the Lord. And now, in the fulmination of time, when the bowl is poured out, the fragrance fills heaven. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. He's about to come to the earth. And you know what? The first time Jesus came, he came and he died smelling like one person's sacrifice. The second time he's coming back, 
He's going to smell the fragrance of millions of believers. He's going to smell like your prayers. He's going to smell like your worship. And that pleasing aroma is what is, what is uh, uh, stirring him up in heaven and causing him to come back for his bride and to set up his kingdom on the earth. It's your prayers. Guys, that's the difference between our God and the false religions of the world. When I was in uh, Tobago with these guys a couple days ago, um, a couple days ago, a couple weeks, months, two months ago, I talked to uh, Spiritual Baptist. Dave's going to talk to you about that. I talked to uh, a Muslim lady. I talked to uh, a Hindu lady. And you know what? I told every one of them, because we talked about truth, and they were all like, oh, yeah, we believe there's lots of gods, and Jesus is a god. And I would say that Jesus is the only way. But then I'd ask him a question. I said, does your God talk to you? Do you hear from your God? Does your God heal your body? Does your God take care of you financially? Is your God close, or is he far off? And I would tell stories of healing. I would tell stories of breakthrough. I'd tell stories. And one lady, this, this, uh, she was a Hindu lady. She said that there's many ways to God. You know, and she knew who Jesus was, but he was cool, but he wasn't the way. And, and uh, I asked her, because I felt something from the Holy Spirit tell me. I said, have you ever had a dream where Jesus came to you? She said, Yes. Jesus came to me, and then she quoted a scripture that was right out of the Bible. And I said, my God talks to me and tells me things about you. And as I told these people, and and that lady came to Christ, and then the next lady, who was uh, Hindu, also came to the Lord. But it wasn't the dazzling facts I knew about Jesus. It wasn't the information. It wasn't the fact that, you know, I could quote you know, chapters and chapters of the Bible. It wasn't that I knew all of the creeds, although those are great. I study those things. I care about those things. But something happened when I looked them in the eye and I said, my God hears me, but he doesn't just hear me. Every time I speak, he moves. He hears me every time he bends down and his ear is near me and he hears me. But he doesn't just hear me. He moves every time. Not one word I use is wasted. Not one word. Not one time that I choose to shake myself from the dust and worship. Every time I say, I don't feel like it. I'm angry. My, you know, I was wronged in this way and I come to DSM and I put that aside and I sing how he loves us. Every time his heart is moved. Every single time. Guys, Your decisions matter in the secret place. And that's my question. Is your God more like Buddha? Is your God like Jesus? Is your God far off and you pray prayers of maybe he hears me, maybe he moves, maybe he sees me, maybe he doesn't. Is that your God? Because to some of you, that's who Jesus is to you.
Or is Jesus the one who every time you pour your worship on him, he responds? Every time, every time, every time, every single time. I want to invite the worship team to come up. I don't want to respond just with an altar call. Actually, if we can just stay in our seats, I want, I'll invite you to stand. But I just want to worship. But in, my, in the worship, here's, here's what I want for us. I want you to look in the face of Jesus tonight and sing to him. He's a real person. He's probably about 5'8". He's not white. He's Jewish. He's probably shorter, right? 5'6". The average Jewish man was about 5'6". And he's not white. He's Jewish, so he, does, he honestly probably looks closer to Brandon than us. Sorry, guys. <laughs> and with the height, he's closer to David than me, so that's good. I'm going to pay for that later. But I want us to picture him in our minds, look him in the eyes, and sing to him. And whether you feel it or not, you tell yourself that his heart is moved, because it is. If your emotions are telling you that his heart isn't moved, sorry, but your emotions are liars. They're lying to you. Whether you feel it or not, he's moved every single time. Every single time. And so tonight, as we worship, I just want us to look in his face and sing these words and mean them, and let's more than just you're awesome let's feel his response and let's feel his love in return for us and over time this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart they've got passion for God they're leading intercession on their schools they're set apart consecrated under God and they've got a vision and a mission for their life